The um, Bible reading today is from Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 34. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God is like a little child, will never enter it. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good, except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, will fail to receive many times as much in this age, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Great, thank you, Andrew. All right, guys, I'll just get myself set up. Um, it really is great to be back here at Trinity Northeast after the year. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I am, I am really thankful for you guys here. Um, a lot of you were really instrumental in, in I think, uh, my going down this kind of vocational ministry path, heading into MAP. Uh, so I am very thankful to God. 
uh, for you guys here and also for this, this opportunity to be able to spend a bit of time looking through God's Word with you. But uh, <clears throat> before we do that, before we get into it, how about I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you <clears throat> so much for this small pocket of time we have this morning to be able to open up your Word to Luke chapter 18 and have a look at that together. Lord, I pray that as we are reading through this, uh, thinking through uh, what your Word has to say today, that you would be teaching us and growing us in our knowledge and understanding of who you are, of what you've done for us through your Son, Jesus. Amen. Great. So, um, reading through this passage, Luke chapter 18, it kind of throws a bunch of questions out there, I think. Uh, I think one of those questions that keeps kind of coming up again and again is that kind of, what, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? What can I offer? And the theme of the passage here is the kingdom of God. Uh, and the kind of question that people keep coming to again and again, looking at this, looking at the kingdom of God, is eternal life. What do I have to do to get it? What do I have to do to get there? What can I offer? And I think for us, uh, this is a question that really kind of rings out in our ears, uh, isn't it? It's a, it's a question that people are asked you know, to do with jobs and that kind of thing, to do with uh, joining uh, an, an organization, uh, people who are even trying to migrate to other countries. Kind of, What do I have to do to get here? I, uh, I actually studied the history of immigration a couple of years ago at Adelaide Uni. I studied it for like six months, one semester, so I'm pretty much an expert in this field, obviously. Uh, but no, one of, the, one of the interesting things that, I, that I, was, I was studying here is to do with immigration to Australia. It's about, this is ages ago, going back uh, kind of one and a quarter centuries. Uh, but it was something called the Immigration Restriction Act that came in in 1901. Something put in place in Australia. And there's a really interesting, or actually ridiculous requirement for people um, seeking to, to apply to, you know, enter Australia that they had to follow. It was something called the dictation test. Right, they had to write down, upon arriving in Australia, 50 words in any European language that the assessor kind of said that they had to write it down in. So any European language. So imagine um, someone from China arriving in Australia, they get sat down by this assessor who says, okay, you need to write down. And, and they're thinking, oh, what, what do I have to do to get here? What can I offer to get here? And the, the assessor looks at them and says, write down 50 words in French that'll do it. It's a bit ridiculous to have to do that kind of thing. And then four years later, in 1905, this changed from any European language to have to write down 50 words in any language in the whole world, which is a bit ridiculous. With that question there, that what, what can I offer? What do I need to do to get in? It's there here in, uh, in Australia, in the world. And it's a question that is really addressed here. And it's a great question that, that Jesus kind of answers for us to do with the kingdom of God. And I really love the title that you guys have had for this series, that avant-garde Christ, that kind of uh, revolutionary way, that forward-thinking way of, uh, of thinking that we come to here. So Jesus really helps us answer this question and knock it on the head. So let's jump into uh, to, to reading from verse 9. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness... And looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to that temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, like robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So when we see this, see who this is addressed to? First and foremost, Jesus says, um, or it says that Jesus is addressing those who are confident of their own righteousness, those who look down on everyone else. And straight away when you read that, kind of the hairs on the back of your neck just kind of stand up and you think, oh. We don't really like it when we see other people kind of standing above everyone else thinking like, oh, I'm so good, I'm the best. We really don't like to see that. But here we have two men, one who thinks that they're pretty amazing, pretty wonderful, and the other who thinks that they are anything but that. When I was preparing for this sermon, I read through those verses uh, at the start, and the thing that actually went through my head was, thank you, God, that I am not like that Pharisee. <laughs> and I, yeah. You know, cause, because when someone stands up, starts listing off their accomplishments and telling everyone else how good they are, we really don't like to see that. But I think some of you laughed, yeah, because you know that if you read that parable of the Pharisee and tax collector and that same thought went through your head, like it did in mine, then we're actually doing exactly the same thing that that Pharisee was doing. So there isn't much difference between quiet pride and loud pride. They're the same thing. And when it comes to righteousness, that is to say making that distinction between what it looks like to be right with God and what it looks like not to be right with God, uh, we're really dealing with something much bigger than those good outward actions of the Pharisee. So there's something wrong with the Pharisee's prayer, but it's not just the fact that he's making a list of all the different things that he's doing, a list of the different things that he's accomplished. Because when you look at the surface of what he says, uh, he actually, we actually see that this man's done some pretty good things, yeah? He gives away money, he's generous, he follows the law, and he fasts twice a week. All right, so this wasn't something that was really necessary for Jews to do twice a week. So for this guy to be doing it, fasting twice a week, like that's, he's going, trying to go above and beyond the call to try to you know, make God happy. So on the surface, we see this kind of frustratingly loud, proud man, and we kind of have to give it to him. So far, he seems to be doing okay at being a good person. But there is something wrong with the Pharisee's prayer because he fails to recognize what God is really paying attention to. You know, the tax collector, on the other hand, knows exactly what God is paying attention to. And that really comes out in his prayer. See, his prayer shows us that he has nothing at all to be proud about. Tax collectors uh, in this time in history uh, were particularly despised, uh, especially by the Jewish population. Tax collectors would take money from the Jews and give it to the Romans, who were kind of uh, in authority at that time, ruling over the Jews. So they didn't like this at all. And it comes out in the Pharisees' prayer as well, doesn't it? He says, thank you that I'm not like that man over there, like that tax collector. And the tax collector fronts up to the temple, but he won't even draw close to it. He won't even look up when he prays, but he beats his breast And he says a sentence that is the plea of a man who knows that he has absolutely nothing to offer to God. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I heard someone say in a sermon a while ago that what is written next contains one of the most crucial, important commas in the Bible to understanding righteousness. In verse 14 there, it says, I tell you that this man, comma, 
rather than the other, went home justified before God. It's to say the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. He went home in a right standing with God. His sin had been dealt with. See, the thing that the Pharisee failed to understand about God was that he actually sees straight through human action and outward appearance, straight to the heart. All its dark secrets, everything. But he thought that through those impressive and loud gestures that he made, those good things that he did, that he was in right standing with God, he thought he'd gotten there. He thought, that question, what do you have to offer to the kingdom of God? He says, this. That is his reply. The tax collector, on the other hand, he knows that it's something much bigger that is separating him from God. It's that issue of sin that's keeping him from being right with him. He knows that only God can deal with that sin. Only God can forgive him for it. The Bible says that there's not a single person who is not guilty of doing this thing, sin, of rejecting God and going our own way. And that not a single person can do something to deal with this sin. It's impossible. So what can you offer? That question, well, the response of the Pharisee, all the good things he'd been doing. He had great pride in that. The response of the tax collector, well, instead of telling God how he was dealing with all the wrong things that he'd done and he was trying really hard to be good, instead of doing that, he throws himself completely, totally at God's mercy. So it's the tax collector rather than the Pharisee who goes home justified. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So for Christians, I think this is something we're kind of we're already familiar with, yeah? Something we already kind of know. Something we come back to again and again. We know we're not meant to approach God with pride. We're not meant to approach offering anything to Him. We are meant to approach with humility, just like the tax collector. But so often our pride isn't that loud pride of the Pharisee. It can be a very quiet pride in our hearts, yet it has exactly the same effect. It can be very sneaky. It's not always kind of right in front of our faces, but it whispers seductively to us. It kind of hides down there in our hearts, in dark corners, coiled up, and only rears its head at the most unexpected times to whisper in our ears. It says, oh, You're doing pretty well, aren't you? Feed me. You wouldn't do what that sinful person did, would you? Feed me. You did so well on prayers and Bible reading today, like you smashed it. Feed me. And you are so generous to that person. Look at all the things you just did for them. You were amazing. Feed me. And we do feed it. I know I feed it. So instead of approaching God reminded of our need for His mercy grateful that he is merciful, we fall into that trap of thinking that we've now got it all together. You know, thanks God for helping me out at the start. That's great. Thank you very much. But I think I'm going pretty well now. You know, like I'm serving on a Sunday. I enjoy doing it. I'm generous. I'm giving that money to people. I don't do the same sins as that guy there. The good example of seeing if we do have this pride or humility, and it's actually in how we approach God's Word and receive God's Word. We're reminded in the book of James, 
in chapter 1, to humbly receive the Word of God. And what does that look like? Have you ever arrived to Bible study during the week or to church on a Sunday and thought, oh, that passage again. I've heard from that passage so many times. I've looked at that passage so many times. What could I possibly learn? I know it all. I wonder if you're approaching reading God's Word that way, if you are actually really ready for it to, hum- to humbly receive it and for it to take effect in your life, or if it could be something that pride is affecting you to look at it that way. It's one example. But how do we make sure that we're not approaching God in this way? How do we stay humble, not be puffed up by our actions, by our knowledge? Uh, like I said, the actions of the Pharisee were good actions. And humility, it, it's not meant to lead to inaction, right? It leads to godly living. But before we look at what that looks like, we need to understand what it actually looks like to approach God with humility, in absolute humility, knowing that we have nothing to offer. And Jesus helps us uh, to see what this looks like through what happens in the very next part of the passage. See, to approach God with humility is to approach Him like a child. Verse 16 says, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So the disciples are there with Jesus. They see these children approaching uh, and they start to rebuke them. But why? Now, Western culture kind of dictates that children be welcomed everywhere, right? We love children. Whenever a newborn baby comes on the scene, like Oliver Austin here, every eye in the room just kind of goes, new baby, awesome. You want to go up, congratulate the parents, meet the new baby. So for Oliver Austin, I was sitting uh, in a cafe on the phone to a friend earlier on this week, and Kate and Richard walked into the cafe, They're like just out of hospital, getting a, getting a drink just on the way home. Um, and I was there at that cafe. I saw them kind of walking over. I was a phone to my friend. I swear he could have been offering me like a million dollars or something. I have no idea what the last 30 seconds of our conversation were. He could have been doing that. And I was just like, a million dollars? No, no, there's a new baby. No, bang. Hang up the phone. Wanted to meet Ollie. We place a lot of value on children here. So why would the disciples react this way when they see the children approaching Jesus? It's partly to do with, uh, well, the culture. But also, before we get to that, when you think of what a baby actually has to offer to the wider world, just as a baby, you can, yeah, you can kind of understand where they're coming from. But also the culture then was that children were not seen as you know, very useful to have around until they could actually contribute something to society, until they could work, until they could help out around the place. So that the disciples see these children coming and they say, no, 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 Jesus isn't too important for you. See, they knew that Jesus was important, even if it did take them a while to catch on to kind of why and specifically he was important. But Jesus, instead of allowing the disciples to turn the children away, he says, let the little children come to me, And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Imagine if I had this conversation with with Oliver Austin before the service as he walks in the door and I came over to him and said, Oliver, how's it going, man? He goes, yeah, pretty good, Jack. Yeah, pretty good. How's the weather? Well, weather's been pretty good. How's life? Life's going well. And we get down to the meat of it and say, Oliver... What can you contribute to this church? 
What can you do to please God and contribute to this world in your first year of life? Right? Imagine Oliver, he turns to me, he ponders for a bit, kind of lies, you know, babies do. Says, well, Jack, by the end of my first year, I plan on having finished memorizing the whole entire Bible. I will follow those Ten Commandments to the letter. I will be a great, well-behaved baby who's going to let my parents get all the sleep in the world. And for now, I'm just going to be doing everything I can to be a good little baby, really. Okay. It's just ridiculous to expect a single thing from a baby, except for total, utter dependence on its mother and father. See, all Oliver can do right now is cry and sleep and eat and then poo and then cry and eat and sleep and then poo again, repeat. At least physically, this is not taking into account the obvious joy and love that he brings into the Austin family. But the total dependence on his parents, this is the kind of dependence that we're to have on God. Knowing that we bring nothing to the table, we have absolutely nothing to offer. What do a tax collector and the baby have in common? I know it sounds like the start to a bit of a corny joke, but it's not. The answer that we read here is total and utter dependence. That's what it looks like to approach God in humility, knowing that we cannot hope to make ourselves right with Him. That we approach like the tax collector and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a small sentence that speaks volumes. The tax collector was totally and utterly dependent on the mercy of God to deal with the problem of his sin. Because God is the only one who could deal with that. Like the child is dependent on its parent to feed them, to care for them, to make sure no harm comes to them, we are to depend on God to make us right with him. Are you dependent on God? Is that a decision that you've made? If you haven't, what could be stopping you from doing that? See, the rich young ruler in verse 18, the very next thing that happens, shows us what this might possibly look like. So imagine it's the early 20th century. You've just jumped off that boat after a really incredibly long voyage. You've arrived in a new country, right? You've thought long and hard about what you might be able to do to um, to gain access to this country you want to get into. You've studied up on some questions. You've behaved really well for the whole voyage. You've even shared your food with people. You put your considerable uh, skill to use in making sure that the voyage is a really nice one for everyone on board. You've pretty much proven that you're a great candidate to get into this country, right? You see a man standing there on the docks who looks pretty important, like he knows what you need to do to be able to get into that country. So you go up to him and you ask, what must I do to get into this country? What kind of advice would you be expecting? Maybe some practical advice, some advice on appropriate etiquette to get there. Maybe you're pretty confident that you're going to get in, but you just thought you might ask for a few last-minute tips to help you out in the interview. Wherever this rich ruler is at in his thinking, he thinks that he's pretty close to inheriting eternal life, to getting into the kingdom of God. But Jesus' reply to him completely, uh, his reply to him just knocks his expectations totally out of order. The question that the rich ruler asks is, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's from verse 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. 
You shall not give false testimony. Honor, inf- honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. On the surface, we read this, and it's a little bit confusing. Hang on, Jesus, just hold up for one second. You told everyone just before that there's nothing that we can do to enter the kingdom of God. There's nothing that we can offer to God to make us right with him. We're meant to be dependent on him. So why are you telling this man to do this thing? It sounds like Jesus is saying, or it could sound like Jesus is saying, he's got to try to buy his way in. But that's not it at all. Jesus here isn't telling the man that he has to do this thing to gain access to the kingdom. Jesus here is understanding that there is something that is stopping this man from turning to follow him. He understands this man's struggle with dependence. That dependence is on his wealth. He doesn't depend on God because he depends on himself, his ability to buy his way through life, depends on that wealth for security rather than turning to God. That's what his heart is focused on. That's what Jesus understands that this man doesn't. That no matter how many good things he does, no matter how much stuff he has, he really can't bring anything to the table. He can't contribute to the kingdom of God. Because it's not a matter of what we can bring to God. It's a matter of what he can do for us. It's a matter of where our hearts rest in relation to him. The tax collector had it right. What did he say? God have mercy on me, a sinner. And he would have been a very wealthy man as well. But he knows where he stands in relation to God and knows his own heart, knows that it's not good. God's not looking at a list of accomplishments and thinking, wow, that person there, they're ready for the kingdom. Give them that golden ticket, they're in. He looks at our hearts. How does that make you feel? The fact that you can't hide a single thing from him. That he sees the things that are stopping you from turning to him and following him. Sees the things that we're dependent on that aren't him. For this rich ruler, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. He didn't want to give up that wealth. He didn't understand that his doing good things and having this wealth do absolutely nothing. Now, at this point in the passage, everyone that's standing around Jesus are thinking, well, if the Pharisee and the tax collector, who were two people who were considered right at the top of society, great people, if they can't get in, what hope is there for me? What do I need to do? They still don't understand what Jesus is getting at. Verse 26, those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus replies, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What the Pharisees, what the rich ruler can't do, what we can't do, God can. Verse 28, Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. He looked at the, took the twelve aside and said, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. 
See, this is the amazing thing about what Jesus did. This is the, the, the avant-garde way or the revolutionary way that Jesus makes it possible for us to belong to the kingdom. The way that we are forgiven of our sin. See, Jesus deals with our sin through his death and he brings us life. The burden of having to earn our way into the kingdom of God is not a burden that we need to bear. Don't depend on yourself, depend on Jesus. That is the answer that Jesus gives to that question, what can I offer? So is there something that is stopping you from turning to follow Jesus? Is there something that uh, is stopping you even just a little bit uh, from turning to him and doing that? If you're here today uh, and you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, I really do hope that some of this resonates with you. And if it does, I want to encourage you, the burden of sin that separates you from God doesn't need to be on your shoulders. Turn to Christ because he has dealt with it. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to buy it. It's a gift that has been freely given to us by a God who loves us enough to pay the greatest price imaginable for you. I hope that today, if there are any of you who are still dragging around that burden of sin on your shoulders, that you accept what Christ has done for you. That today might be the day you say those words, God, have mercy on me, a sinner trusting and knowing that he will because you can depend on what he has done for you through Jesus. Now, for the majority of us here today uh, who do call ourselves followers of Christ, uh, Christians, are there any things that have been getting in the way lately of you following Jesus? Are you turning to him and depending on him alone? Uh, Could it be that you uh, might be in the situation of the Pharisees? Outwardly, you're amazing. You do the right things. You're saying the right things. But sometimes you're just kind of forgetting that these actions are hollow. If your heart, or if in your heart, you were doing them for yourself. Are you doing those things because you feel like it's your duty to do them for God? Or are you doing those things out of love, serving in the way that Jesus served with humility? If you grumble about having to do things on a Sunday morning here at church, then it's quite possible that you're doing thing, those things out of duty. You know what I'm talking about, kind of waking up and going, ah, oh, I'm on kids again, third week in a row. That's duty. If you're doing things because you know you'll get a big thank you at the end of the morning, well, you're also doing those things so that you just feel better afterwards. But humble service of others looks exactly like how Jesus served others and served us with joy, not expecting praise or reward from anyone for that service, but because you love others. You want to put their interests above your own. Ultimately, that is what Jesus did for us. And it's what we're called to do as we follow him. We don't depend on Jesus and on our duty to have to do things. We depend on Jesus alone and seek to live in response to what he's done for us. A good way uh, to test this, to think back, uh, this, this kind of dependence is to think back on some of the hard things that have happened in life lately. It could have been over the last few years. It could be very recent. And think through what is the first thing that you turn to, say, when your position at work is under jeopardy, when you're having a hard time with your family, when your friends who aren't Christians are maybe paying you out a little bit, calling you a bit of an idiot for believing in God at work. 
if the first thing you turn to is anything but God, then you know that you might be getting your priorities a little bit out of order. See, the wealth of the tax collector wasn't bad. The actions that he did in honoring his father and mother, not stealing, uh, not murdering, not telling lies, you know, those are good things, obviously. But when you start depending on those things, like that wealth, when times get difficult, and prioritizing that above turning and following Jesus, then we're really just guilty of the same thing as the Pharisee and as the rich ruler we're guilty of. We're putting other things in the way of following Jesus. Jesus poses a really great question here for us. Are you willing to let go of everything you have in life, all the securities, all of your desires to follow me? What would your response have been if you were in the rich ruler's place and Jesus came and told you to give up that which is stopping you from following him? Whether that's money or career, uh, relationship. Maybe today there's something you're just starting to realize could be getting in the way of you following Jesus. Like I said, those things I've listed above are really good in and of themselves, but when we start to do those things to the exclusion of God or in His place, that's when we know we're prioritizing the wrong thing. So how do you realize those things and stop them? Let's remember the tax collector's prayer. Don't try to figure out what those things are by yourself. Don't try to just deal with them by yourself before coming to God and asking God to help you figure out what that might be, to helping you to deal with them. And if you know that you've been doing the wrong thing, ask for his forgiveness, knowing that he loves you, knowing that he forgives. Maybe even ask someone you're close to to help you in figuring this out, uh, to see if you have any blind spots in your life, things that you aren't aware of that may be stopping you from having Jesus smack bang at the center. And a great gift that God has given to us to help us think through this, this thing, the Bible. It's there to help us live this kind of life that follows Jesus. So read it and ask God to help you understand it with humility so that you are ready for it to change you and shape you and aid you in following Christ. But never ever forget that it isn't by what we do that saves. This is the great news. It's what God has done for us through his son. Our response to that should be what the tax collector did. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And seeking to follow Jesus with every fibre of our being, acknowledging that we can only ever really depend on him. And we know that we can trust in God's mercy, right? We know that we're going to get these things wrong at times, but we know that he loves us, that he is merciful. Today we've read that there's nothing we can offer up to God, nothing that will gain us access into his kingdom, This is only something God can do, and he's made that possible for us through his son, Jesus. So turn to him, depend on him, and what he's done for you. Imagine you rock up at heaven, and you see him standing there. There's no, you know, ridiculous dictation test to try to get into the country, get into heaven. There's no amount of money you need to offer up to him, no amount of skill you need to kind of bring to the table, just your loving saviour. Who's standing there saying, I've paid it all for you. Welcome home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing love for us, shown to us through your Son, Jesus. 
Lord, help us in times where we try to uh, ignore you, when pride gets in the way of the way that we're living our lives, Lord. Help us to constantly come back to you in humility, acknowledging that sin, Lord, knowing that you are God who loves us and forgives. Help us to live lives that are dependent on you and on nothing else. And help us, please, uh, to encourage one another in this, to constantly be pointing one another to the cross, constantly pointing one another to Jesus. Amen.